Let us pray. Lord, now may the words of our mouth, the meditation of our hearts, be found acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There was a man who uh, applied for an animal feeding job at the local zoo. Uh, He was told, we've already filled that position, but we have another opening if you might be interested in it. He said, you see, uh, yesterday our gorilla died. And if we give you a gorilla suit, uh, would you be willing to sit in his cage and uh, imitate him for a few weeks? And the man who was kind of desperate for money agreed. And actually, he was quite good at it. He, he put the gorilla suit on. He would beat his chest and he would bellow and he would shake the bars of the cage. And the zoo visitors just absolutely enjoyed watching him. But one day while he was swinging back and forth on the trapeze in his cage... Uh, He lost his grip and flew over the fence and landed in the lion's cage. And the lion gave out this ferocious roar, and the ape imposter suddenly began to panic. Uh, He tried to back away, but the lion kept following. And finally, in desperation, this ape man said, help, help. And the lion opened his mouth one more time. But this time, instead of roaring, he said in an intense whisper, Be quiet, you fool, or you'll get us both fired. (laughs) Now, sometimes things aren't exactly what they seem. The Bible word for this is hypocrisy. And I couldn't resist but use the one up there that says the church is not full of hypocrites. There's always room for more. I always love that because, have you ever heard somebody say that to you? I don't want to come because the church is full of hypocrites. My response is, well, of course it is. Because it's a hospital for broken people. It's not a place for perfect people. Now, one definition means very simply to act, to assume the role of a counterfeit character. Or as you see up on the screen, a hypocrite. Hypocrisy is the state of Uh, pretending to have beliefs, opinions, virtues, feelings, qualities, or standards that one does not actually have. Hypocrisy involves the deception of others and is thus a lie. Hypocrisy. It comes from a Greek word which is hypocrites, which means to have two faces. And it kind of depends which face you're putting up at different times. Two faces. Now, in Jesus' day... He was confronted with a number of hypocritical attitudes in religious people. And as always, as you would expect, Jesus spoke out against them. Uh, He spoke out against their game playing and their facades, and he challenged them to embrace true holiness. And I would suggest to you, based on our reading for today, that he does the same today. And that's because you and I, if we're honest with ourselves, still struggle Uh, with the same temptations to play religious games. And this kind of hypocrisy can, if left unchecked, be a major roadblock in our journey towards being more and more like Jesus each and every day. Now, I don't believe that anybody ever actually sets out to intentionally become a hypocrite. But how it comes is we, uh, we kind of allow ourselves to engage in certain religious games rather than pursuing actual truth, actual spiritual things, actual biblical holiness. Now, today I just want to look at three little problem areas. There are three hypocritical games that Jesus identifies in our text that kind of stand in the way of our becoming what God would really want us to be. 
And hopefully we're going to learn how to kind of squash some of those areas of hypocrisy that creep into our own lives. Now, I'm going to back up and start with verse 18 in our text, where it says, Early in the morning, as he, that's Jesus, was on his way back into the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. Immediately, the fig tree withered. And here Jesus identifies problem number one. It's a lack of substance. It's looking good without actually doing good. Now, at first when you read this and you hear this story, uh, the fig tree, it's a little bit confusing because we know when this story took place. It took place in April because Jesus was about to go and celebrate Passover. This is not the time of the year when the fig tree bears fruit. Uh, fig trees uh, bear crops two times a year. The first is in June, and the second is in September. So when Jesus comes by and he curses this fig tree <coughs> for not having fruit, it first appears that he's blaming the fruit for not doing when it was enabled to do so, which was to bear fruit in the early spring. Now, if you've ever seen fig trees, and <coughs> I've seen plenty of them because they're planted all over down at Angola Prison, Typically in April, this is what a fig tree looks like. Uh, it has green little knobs on the branches. And these buds are going to eventually develop in the figs. So Matthew says that when Jesus looked at the fig tree, he found nothing except leaves. In other words, he saw no buds. He saw no knobs. He saw no promise of fruit. All he saw was just leaves. Now, no doubt a fig tree is a, a beautiful tree, as fig trees are, but from Jesus' point of view, that tree was utterly useless. So Jesus cursed it. Now, this story, that little story is really kind of a part of a, an acted out parable that reminds you and me that outward beauty, an abundance of leaves on our branches, you know, dressing up, being clean, parking ourselves in our own little pew, might be abundance of a lot of leaves, but Jesus says it's more than that. See, in our lives, there also needs to be fruit. And there needs to be promise of even more fruit. And so here Jesus condemns one of the games that people play in church. And that's that it often consists of looking good without ever actually doing good. Having a lot of leaves, he said, is not enough. You and I need to bear fruit. Now, the question is, what does it mean to bear fruit? Well, it just literally means to live out our lives <coughs> with actions and attitudes that would serve to fill the hunger in other people's lives. See, God is calling us to live an others-oriented lifestyle. So I have to ask myself, is my life bearing the fruit that is filling the hunger in other people? Or am I just a bunch of leaves? Am I focused more on looking good or on actually doing good? Now, how many of you ever know anybody that's ever got an, earned an honorary doctorate? If you know people earned an honorary doctorate, I know a few of them. Now, I don't want to offend anybody who does, 
but <laughs> I probably am going to. I don't really mean to offend anybody because to earn, get an honorary doctorate is really an honor. But you know something? It would be foolish to equate an honorary doctorate with an earned doctorate. A person who receives an honorary doctorate <coughs> in literature is not actually qualified to teach literature. A person who receives an honorary doctorate in business is not necessarily qualified to run a big corporation. Now, you can be sure that when I go to my doctor, I do the same thing that maybe some of you do, is I read those certificates on the wall. And when I got to uh, our new place of living and I started going to Colleyville Family Medicine and I was assigned to Dr. Bird, and as I sat in her office, I looked at her diplomas. And um, I wanted to make sure that she had more than an honorary degree in medicine. Now, to receive an honorary degree, a doctor is an honor, but it does not equip you to do surgery or practice medicine on other people. But there are some people, it seems, that are just as happy to have an honorary doctorate than to go through the process of actually earning that degree. See, in the same way, sometimes you and I are more content to have the appearance of holiness rather than being the real thing. I think it was Dwight Moody who said, are you the same person in the dark as you are in the light? Are you the same person in the daylight as when you're at home with the lights off? See, we're content with looking good rather than doing good. And this is the problem area we need to uh, watch out for. Focusing on surface level appearances rather than actually having true substance in our lives. In the book of Isaiah, uh, we have God speaking through the prophet. And he says, these people, and he's talking about the children of Israel, God's own people. He said, these people come near to me with their mouth. And honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Now, if I gave you a mental picture of this, he would say, these people have gotten, they, they took their baths on Saturday night. They got up, they put on their best clothes on a Sunday morning. They come and they say all the right words. They sing all the right words, but they left their heart somewhere else. I mean, is that Me? Is that you? Is that us? I mean, who is that? So he's talking about looking good versus doing good. So I say our challenge again is to go beyond surface level activity and kind of dive deep into the substance of our lives. Uh, it's developing attitudes and actions again that fill the hunger of other people. And that's the first problem area that we really have to deal with. Looking good without doing good. Here's problem number two. It's a lack of faith. Praying without power. In verses 20 to 22, it says, When the disciples saw this, the fig tree just suddenly withering away, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Now, I don't know what crosses your mind when you hear those words. I can vaguely remember some of the first times I ever heard that. I just could not possibly imagine 
And I grew up in, I was born in Colorado, and for a little while I lived near in the Denver area, and I could look out across the street, across the prairie, to the mountains. I could not imagine ever, at any point in time, to say, hey, Rocky Mountains, get up, fly into the Pacific, and see that happen. Now, that's a very, very bold promise concerning prayer. Now, Jesus is saying here that if we pray in faith, we can move Mountains. Now, we're talking about literal mountains. I'm not so sure that Jesus was talking about literal mountains, although, who knows, maybe he was. So, we must look at our prayer lives and ask ourselves, are the mountains in our life moving out of the way? I mean, what mountains do you have in your life right now? I mean, they could be all kinds of things. Are they just consistently just sitting there? You can't get over... Inside a mountain, like you say, you just can't get over the hump. You can't get over that mountain. You have actually made mountains out of what? Your little molehills in life. I mean, are, are the mountains in our life moving, or are we actually seeing results via our prayer life? I mean, if these mountains are not moving, the only thing we can say is there must be a clog in the system somewhere. Something's not right. Now, I know this, this sounds harsh, but I'm, I'm also speaking to myself this morning, and that's that sometimes we just play games with our prayers. We're playing a game with faith. We're kind of flirting, if you will, with hypocrisy. Let me give you an example. If it's hypocritical to say, I believe that God loves me and wants the best for my life, but not having the boldness to actually ask for God's best in my life. Or it's hypocritical for us to say that God has the desire and the power to accomplish something or anything in my life and then not asking for anything and everything in my life. So what Jesus is really challenging us all to do in our prayers is to pray bigger prayers, pray bolder prayers. And he's challenging us to believe him to actually answer those prayers. In the book of James, it says that sometimes you do not have because you do not ask. Now, when I read that, it's kind of like saying, well, I, evidently my God can't do what I was going to ask him to do. A few years ago, I heard a story about a company that ran an ad. They were looking for a salesman. It was about a straight commission job. The company projected that a person did a, a good job. They could probably earn about $50,000 a year. They got no response. So a few weeks later, they re-ran that ad, except this time they, they changed the, pro the projected earnings level to $25,000, and they were flooded with replies. Now, what do you draw from that? Well, apparently, the guy said, there are people who believe that they're worth $25,000. There are more people who believe that they're worth $25,000 than there are people who believe that they're worth $50,000. Now, when I heard that, and he could have been this guy talked about this, I don't really remember, but that's often the way we approach our prayers. We're afraid to pray big prayers, bold prayers. We're afraid to speak to the mountain and tell it to move. And it's not because we don't believe in ourselves. It's that we don't necessarily believe in our God. But Jesus makes this promise. I mean, it is a promise in verse 22. If you believe... You will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. I mean, Jesus actually told his disciples, you guys think this was something? 
Someday you're going to do bigger and better. I've always wondered about that one. Like, wow, Jesus did, I could do bigger and better. What does that mean? But I think we're sometimes very afraid to believe it. So we kind of continue to prayer to pray, I don't know what I call it, benign or innocuous. There's got to be smaller words, but those are the only words I can think of right now. Benign or innocuous prayers uh, that kind of reflect nothing of God's power that's truly available. We gain nothing. Why? Because we risk nothing. And in the process, we kind of flirt again with hypocrisy. I guess what I, I challenge you to do, and I, I, I wrote this really kind of for myself, but I'm going to challenge you with this too, and that is to think of something that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you believe God really wants to accomplish in your life. Now, I'm not talking about added material blessings. I'm not preaching some prosperity gospel here or anything like that. Uh, I'm talking about, let's say, victory over sin or a restored relationship or a renewed ministry or an increase in Bible study or that you actually finish some books that you're writing. I don't care what it might be. Something you know or feel that God literally has laid on your heart that he desires you want to accomplish, but for some reason or another has just eluded you. You know God is calling, but you've not prayed with power. And then I would say, start praying for that in a big way. I I remember a number of years ago, I prayed what was kind of a, a very dangerous prayer. And the dangerous prayer went this way. Lord, before you ever ask, the answer is yes. Now, I learned a couple of lessons. Number one is before you answer the answer, yes, God starts putting all kinds of things out in front of you in one way or another. And not all of those were meant to be answered with a yes. It's kind of like you also need to learn a little discernment along the way. But that's also how I ended up in South Africa. And that's also how I ended up in India and Haiti and other places around this world. Because God asked, and I already said, yeah, when that call comes, I will go. But pray with absolute faith, not faith in yourself. We talked a little bit about that this morning in Bible class. Remember, there's a lot of stuff we can do on our own. And sometimes the more we do on our own, the less reliance we actually have on God. We don't include him. Whatever obstacle seems to be lying out there, whatever mountain is standing in your way, begin praying in faith that that mountain will be moved. I began to think this last week that probably one of the biggest mountains many of us have is called inertia. It was a body at rest tends to stay at rest. And we need to fire up and move on. One of the biggest challenges for me, I'll be honest with you, in in finishing writing some books is that I kind of get tired and I just kind of stop doing it. Move on. And I think when you begin praying in faith that that mountain of what... uh, the mountain of watching television instead of doing what God's called you. The mountain of just being lazy. I don't know what it might be. But when you do that, you begin to see results. And that's not my guarantee. That's God's guarantee. See, Jesus wants to get us beyond this religious game playing and start living lives of full-blown faith. He wants us to get beyond the hypocrisy of saying that we believe in an all-powerful God yet never doing anything to unleash his power in our lives. So if you want to hit hypocrisy right in the face, then start praying in faith and start praying 
with power. That's a third problem Jesus talks about here, and it's a lack of commitment. It's avoiding the truth. In the text, it goes on, verse 23, Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked? And who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Here's the question. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he'll ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we're afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Now, I don't know that Jesus was dodging their question, but you know, it's kind of funny. Do you ever see Jesus ever answering anybody's question directly in the Bible? He almost never does. In, in fact, maybe he never does. He almost always responds with another question or telling a story that nobody understands. I just find that rather intriguing. But he really wasn't dodging it so much as he was pressing down for a commitment from them. Throughout his ministry, he'd always been clear about whose authority he was under. And back in John, John chapter 5, 18th verse, it says, I tell you the truth, the Son of Man can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. See, he knew that these chief priests, the elders, were trying to set a trap for him, and he would not rise to the bait. He wouldn't take it. Instead, he zeroed in on an area of hypocrisy in their lives. The fact that they were more concerned about public opinion than they were about seeking after the truth. And as you look at, it, at their response, you see they, were never, they never seriously considered Jesus' question. I mean, they didn't suddenly huddle up and say, well, what do you think about this, guys? I mean, was John's baptism of heaven or not? I mean, their only concern was, how could we trap Jesus? How many of you have ever been in an argument with someone who has been proven wrong but refuses to admit it? Now, don't be looking at people. I saw that. <laughs> Unfortunately, my wife is sitting right in front of me. Uh, see, the, the truth can be staring them in the face, but they absolutely refuse to look at it. They're not interested in the truth. They're interested in having their way, in winning their side of the argument, right or not. I often think of that every time I ever watch a press conference. It, it's, a, it's that kind of arrogance <coughs> that we need to be on guard against. The kind of arrogance that says, my mind is made up. Don't confuse me with the facts. <laughs> See, it's like cement. We're all mixed up and set in place. Uh, when we develop that attitude, we're kind of playing a religious game again in which our religion consists of individual preference and personal opinion rather than a foundation of truth. In fact, there's been an argument in churches for many years over style and substance. The church sometimes seems to be really hung up on style, what, what it's supposed to look like. I mean, how the pastor is expected to dress, for example, all style things. What kind of hymns, what kind of music? You know, should it be a pipe organ? Should it be an electric organ? Should it be a band? Should it have trumpets? Should it have violin? Should it have this? And in the process of arguing about all the style, what do we forget about? We forget about law and gospel. We forget about the sacraments. We forget about the pure 
uh, inspired and errant word of God. You know, we're more interested in how we feel than what should make us feel. So when we close our eyes to the truth, we end up courting hypocrisy. Uh, instead, we need to remain teachable. We need to remain pliable. We need to keep our, our hearts open to the truth that God wants to teach. I went to a, a three-day conference in Katy, Texas this last week. And um, I always appreciate President Hennings. Uh, he comes up and he, he told me, he said, you know, it's really good to see you at these conferences. And I said, thank you. He said, no, I, I really mean... I really wish more guys who have kind of retired would continue to come to these things. And I said, well, the reason I come, even though I consider myself to be kind of retired from pastoral ministry, is that I don't want to stop learning. And every time I learn something, do I change what I've been doing? Not necessarily. But sometimes I do. You know, God's truth can be wrapped up in different packages and you can learn something. So even old dogs can do what? Learn a few new tricks along the way. Keep your hearts open. Open to the truth of God. And see what it is that God wants you to learn. Now, I, I grant you that uh, hypocrisy is not a pleasant subject, especially sometimes when we consider how it kind of lands in our row or in our pew or in our lap or in the pulpit. But, you know, if we're not careful, that's kind of what Jesus is saying. Uh, hypocritical attitudes or hypocritical actions can seep into our lives and kind of undermine our Christian life. So today I just want to challenge you to hit hypocrisy head on. Don't settle for surface level living. Seek out a life of substance. Don't settle for praying weak and ineffective prayers, but seek the power of God in your life. And don't settle for what I would call deliberately assumed ignorance. But do, but do, do seek the courage to pursue this kind of knowledge of truth. Now, what is the truth that we ought to pursue? Well, I'm sure you've seen that Bible passage before. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And, of course, the truth to pursue is found in John chapter 14. It's in verses 1 through 6. You often hear this read at a funeral. I think it's just because of one particular passage, but it's really kind of loaded with good stuff. It's when Jesus is comforting his own disciples. But he said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. My father's house has plenty of room. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And then Jesus says these words you see on the screen. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's the truth. Here's the truth. I'm going to wrap it up in another way. Jesus is truly the way. It's that Jesus is the only way. I mean, I've actually been told by some people, well, I know that you believe that Jesus is a way to heaven. 
And I go, no, 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 no. I'm not saying a way. I am saying he is the way. In fact, I'm going to add the only way. I am the only way, the truth and the life. The truth is that Jesus is the only way to truly knowing and experiencing God as our true Heavenly Father. Jesus is the only embodiment of all the truth that provides freedom from the guilt and the bondage of our sins. Jesus is the source of life that is blessed now and forevermore. But here comes the big question in ending. This is kind of like Luther saying, so what does this mean? The big question is this. Is Jesus your way to God? Is Jesus your way to truth? Is Jesus your way to true life? Is Jesus your way to a close and personal relationship with God? Is Jesus your way to deliverance from the guilt of sin by the shed blood of Jesus Christ? Is Jesus your way to an abundant life by virtue of a spiritual rebirth and the blessings that follow? You see, friends, Jesus may be the way, but he is absolutely of no value unless he becomes your way. Your way to the true salvation that leads to eternal life with God. Now, if I were into an altar call today... I guess I would say, have you ever responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ? I remember one of our worship leaders back at Lord of Life used to always say, if so, today could be the very first day of the rest of your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that Jesus is the way. The truth, the life, to a close personal relationship with our Heavenly Father, we know that He is also the way to deliverance from the guilt of sin. We also know that He's the way to an abundant life. But today, Lord, we pray that more than just being the way, that He is our way, or my way, to true salvation that leads to eternal life with You. We pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.